Hi, I'm Kitty. I'm really, really pleased that Mickey is here. Um, I, you know, people ask me how do you find speakers, and sometimes it's a, um, a viral system. And in this case, a colleague of mine works with Mickey and said, you know, you should meet Mickey McManus. And we talked on the phone, and I was just so stunned and interested in what he had to say. And I'm really thrilled he's here. Among other things, he's going to talk about not only the complexity of information that we're all getting, and one of the reasons that our AT&T phones aren't working right now is because so many people are, are tweeting on our campus. And this is just to his point about the fact that the fragility of the infrastructure underneath information flows is significant. So it's my pleasure to introduce you, uh, Mickey McManus from Maya Design, who is an engineer, correct? A designer, actually, but I work with all sorts of engineers and okay. crazy people. Interdisciplinary, making yeah. information and technology more useful for all of us. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Kitty. Hi, everybody. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, hope you guys can stay awake for it. I know it's the afternoon. You just had a lot of food. If I end up napping, just keep quiet so I can kind of get through it. Um, so I, I, I'm going to talk about um, nature. And I mean that in the broadest sense. So, so not necessarily only biology and the, and the bio side of things, but nature in general. And what, that, what those kinds of things that we find in nature could teach us about computing and maybe about where we're going. Um, you know, I subtitle this for, for bio, uh, really biomimicry in the age of a trillion nodes. And, and I use a trillion nodes because I want, I want everyone to get a sense of how big digital living is going to be when we're actually in it, because we're not there yet. Um, we're really just dipping our, our toes in the water uh, on the edge of something, and we're, we're very far away from what the sort of mature model of that's going to be. But it's pretty obvious what it could be if we look at nature, because nature already copes with that kind of scale and that kind of unbounded complexity every day. So I'm from Maya. Um, our company spun out of Carnegie Mellon back in 1989. Uh, our whole focus is at the intersection between digital living and the connected world and all that technology and normal people. And how do we actually cope with all this technology? So uh, Maya is actually an acronym. It stands for that. We stole the acronym from uh, a famous industrial designer from the 1930s who came up with this notion. He said, if you can find that place where it's most advanced technology, yet acceptable for normal people, you've found the Maya zone. You know, it's that, it's that place that actually works. It's not just for geeks. It's not just, uh, you know, for the, for the very small minority of people who like to tinker all the time. Um, and we loved it, so we stole it. And, and that's really what our focus has been. Uh, we're made up of uh, three different disciplines, human sciences, so cognitive psychology, anthropology, uh, ethnography, people who understand how people think, uh, engineers who understand how things are made, electrical, mechanical, computer scientists, mathematicians, and then uh, designers, so uh, architects, graphic designers, industrial designers, uh, filmmakers, people who understand how to give form and function. Um, and we've been plugging away at trying to understand this space for about 20 years. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, I think first it helps if we have a sense of the history of computing and, and kind of take it forward a little bit into the future, if we just take the obvious steps. So let me talk a little bit first about the history of computing. And um, I think I want to kind of start by, by zooming backward in time. So if you could roll back to like 1900s and look at what computing was. Um, if you tabulated numbers, you were a computer. It was a career. You could get a job as a, as a computer. There was no such thing as electronic computers. And um, you could be hired and make a good wage. You tabulated things. You were a computer. Um, if you fast forward to maybe the 1940s, um, what you find is they invented this new thing based on those computers that were people uh, called electronic computers. And these were giant building-size computers. 
And the whole challenge there was to break uh, encryption codes, try to understand what the Japanese and the Germans were doing, and, and really try to understand and win a war, you know, calculate things. It was sort of like giant calculators, big building-sized calculators. In fact, some of them were called things like Colossus. And when they talked about bugs, they were actually talking about actual bugs between the tubes, uh, the, elect- the electric, you know, the, the vacuum tubes. So um, back then, you know, 1940s, 50s, we maybe had five. In the whole world, we had five electronic computers. And they were the size of a building. At one point, there's a sort of apocryphal um, quote from the IBM chairman back in 1950-so or 40-49 that he believes there's a world market for about four to five computers. That's the whole world market there will ever be for computers. He just didn't seem to think that that would be a big future. Um, and this is actually one of the things we'll start, we'll, uh, I'm going to start talking about, which is when we're living in the now, we think we're living kind of at the best of all possible worlds, and tomorrow is going to be just like you know, faster things, flying cars, but mostly just like smaller, faster, whatever, but it's mostly going to be just like today. We have a very hard time thinking about the future. So this was kind of a small mountain, right? We had climbed this little mountain. It had four or five computers. Now, now let's flash forward to maybe the 1960s, the 70s, when Xerox Park started thinking about things, all the way up to today, you know, all the way up to this moment in time. We have climbed this really big mountain. You know, this is huge in some respects, right? It's, it's this new idea where you look into a, a computer and you see a place, and there are folders, and there's a trash can, and all your information is in there. So this is computing as a place. You look into the computer, and you see your stuff. Um, and, and this was a whole paradigm shift that started around the, the 60s and the 70s and really came to fruition today. We think of sort of the information in the computer. And this is a big deal. Um, in fact, we've climbed a monstrous mountain, and this is what we're all living in right now, which is wonderful. Um, I think recently I saw back in November, we hit one billion Internet users. So one billion people, you know, different kinds of uh, ways using the Internet. That's a huge mountain. I mean, this is going from five to one billion. That's a big deal. Um, so, so, I think, so I think that's important to think about. Now, here's one of the interesting things, though. When people started looking at that mountain, they realized there was a much bigger mountain. A billion is nothing. A trillion is coming, and it's coming pretty quickly. What does the trillion node network look like? And let me talk to, talk to you a little bit about that. This is, this is something that a lot of the guys who are really working today, you know, the guys at Google, the guys at Microsoft, the guys right at the cutting edge, they, they know there's a much bigger mountain out there. It's obvious because we're talking about putting chips in everything. So how big is a trillion? I mean, I think it's really important to try to understand this. And, and I'm terrible with numbers. And I asked somebody to explain to me, how do you understand such a big number? And they told me the way to do this is actually to count back in seconds. So if you count back in seconds from right now, you can kind of get a sense of how big a number is. We'll count back in seconds. So um, I think what I'll do first, uh, maybe I'll start with millions. So count back in seconds from a million, a million seconds right now. It turns out that was maybe a week and a half ago. Not that far, a million seconds about a week and a half ago. Um, Okay. Now we're going to count back to a billion. So think about that. How far back would a billion seconds be? Try to think of it in your head before I even show what it is. And we'll count back to a billion. A couple years, three years. Well, it was actually about 30 years. So it was the 70s. That's a billion seconds. Right? This was right around you know, when we started to agree that an 8-bit byte was a nice way to bundle things up. Um, so a billion seconds ago was, was 30 years ago. We were dressing way better back then. So now, all right, now you've got it, right? A million is about a week and a half. A billion is about, you know, 30 years. 
Think in your head how far back a trillion seconds is. 30,000. So let's take a look. Um, if we count back in seconds, and a lot of people will throw different things out. You know, maybe it's the 1900s, or maybe it's you know, uh, when Christ was born, or you know, maybe etc. Well, it turns out that a trillion seconds ago, it was about 30,000 years ago. So we were living in caves trying to teach dogs to like us because nobody else would. Right? This is the time that we were living in. Um, 30,000 years ago is a trillion seconds. And, and so that's a, that gives you a little bit better sense of what, what the world is going to look like, probably within the next five years. Most analysts say we'll probably hit a trillion soon. So, so think about this for a second. You know, today, computing is about sort of information in the computer. In the future, it'll really be because there's so much information. It will really be us in the information. In fact, it'll be our devices in the information. We'll be swimming in the information. Um, it's, it's really a, a shift. It's really not going to be computing sort of as a big calculator or even as a place, but it's going to be about computing as an ecology. When you get to that big, you're really talking about ecological scale. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people, when they hear trillion, they're like, oh, the deficit. That's not that big. You know, trillion. A few, once you add up a bunch of trillion, you really got some kind of a deficit. Um, but it takes a while, right? The, the trillion just, we've been numb to it. But the problem is I'm not talking about a trillion $1 bills. I'm not talking about a trillion things that are all the same. I'm talking about a trillion things that are all different. And they're all sending you spam. And they're all sending you email. And they're all sending you a trillion messages each. Right? And they're all turning into bricks because somebody pushed an update to them at the wrong moment. You know, and maybe it's lighting in the operating room that you're being operated on, but Microsoft had to push an update. Or someone else did. I don't want to pick on them. I think everybody's in this sense of we need to fix things when, they're, when, they're, when we're evolving them. So think about that. Every single part of your life, there probably is going to be information coming from places. Um, so this is a trillion in a very different way. Now, you know, I, as I mentioned, the guys who are standing at the top of the, uh, of the current mountain, they see it, right? They, they've stood up there, and they've looked through their binoculars, and they have seen the other mountain. It is huge. But one of the things that I think we've seen, it's not everybody. There are some, there are some people that are, that are pushing in new ways. But a large part of the industry that has to do with everything we do about computing has actually confused a good view for a short distance. It looks so close. You know, when you look at the mountains, they're like right there. They're so crystal clear. But the problem is, when you think it's so close, you start building fire towers. You start saying, hey, we can just get there from here. We'll just kind of build some scaffolding, and we'll get over there. And the reality is, it's a much farther climb. When you get to a local hill, and you get to this point of sort of optimum results, you have to actually do worse to get off that hill, to get to another hill. You, you can't have more features. You'll never get any higher. You're at a diminishing uh, volume at the top of this hill. So we need to think very differently. I mean, in reality, we're going to have to climb down the hill. We're going to have to ford the river, go through the forest, and we're going to have to climb the other side. We need to think very differently. This is about a, a change in orthodoxy dramatically from what we are seeing today. It is not going to be just like today. So... And I don't want to claim anybody has solved the problem of this trillions. I think it's coming. And it's coming because of a lot of market forces. Um, it's just so damn cheap to put stuff into things. The semiconductor industry put out a, a report a little while ago that said that they make more transistors than grains of rice. And they make them cheaper. That was 2006. Right? So, so it is just so damn cheap that people will be putting things in everything. They'll do it for other reasons. You know, warehouse tracking, uh, energy conservation, et cetera. There are a lot of reasons that you might want to do that. So we haven't solved trillions, but there's an interesting point. Nature has solved trillions. Nature deals with trillions all the time. Um, 
you know, think about our own bodies. Our bodies are actually complicated information systems in their own right. But if you look down at the bottom of them, you know, it's atoms, and then atoms make up molecules, and then molecules make up cells. You know, and then those cells get together, and they make up organs, and then the organs make up systems, and then those systems make up me, and then you and I together, you know, we make up us, and then a group of us make up communities. Right? So, so this is the way nature works. It's something that's actually called layered complexity. We have very simple things at the bottom, atoms, molecules, things like that, and they don't have to know what people are going to use them for. So they don't have to sort of understand upwards. This is called layered semantics. They're just very basic, and every complex system has this. So layered complexity. That's one of the building blocks, completely unseen. We don't talk about it at all. But if you don't build things this way, you end up with incredibly brittle systems. So, so that's kind of the preface. Trillions are the future. They're coming. I mean, I'm sure we could screw it up somehow, but at some point it's going to happen. Um, and if we were to look into the future, we might find some really interesting things there. You know, um, there, there's probably peril and there's probably some wonderful stuff. Let me give you one example. We were working last year with a group from the UK who was making $10 uh, outlets that you could put in the walls. Uh, outlets, uh, light switches, circuit breakers. They were $10. They were internet ready. They actually um, joined the internet uh, for $10, which is the price of an existing outlet. They're already in, in manufacturing of breakers in, in Europe today. These things are complicated, sophisticated computers. Uh, they estimated that about 300 billion outlets, light switches, breakers um, are in the world. And if we were to just replace a fraction of that, we'd be talking about far more numbers than we're talking about when we talk even about humans. And those, those uh, outlets are really fascinating. When you, we tried it out. When you plug in a color copier and you make a copy, you can tell just by the electrical signal, because it's sampling a thousand times a second, and it's creating these complicated waveforms to understand what's coming on electricity-wise, you can actually tell if it's a black and white print or a color print. You can tell if it's a, a, a hard, a thick piece of paper or a thin piece of paper. You can tell if it's color, black and white. You can tell all that from just the signal coming out of your outlet. Without knowing anything about the copier, you can actually dictate that. They can tell which copier it is just by the signature. So think about this. 300 billion just outlets. I'm not even talking about anything fancy. But if you do the numbers, if you, if you do some percentage of those, you could lower electric consumption by 20 to 40%. So there are lots of reasons why you would do that. All that feedback allows you to actually react to it. You get more information. You can decide what to do. So that's layered complexity. Um, it, it turns out there are some other ones, too. And, and I'm going to kind of go through a powers of 10 count up from uh, starting with physics and then kind of going all the way up uh, to some other ones, and I'm going to touch on a few of those. So, down at the physics level, there's this thing called universal identity. So this is a little, a little trick that we get. We actually get it for free from the universe. Two atoms can't exist in the same place at the same time. It's like free. And so we actually end up with identity. And, and um, so universal identity, no two atoms in the whole world, whole universe can be in the same place at the same time. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, you know, if you and I are talking about, like, a can of cola... We both know we're talking about the same thing. You know, we're both looking at it. You can't have two colas floating in the same place in the same space. Atoms don't let you do it. So we can actually understand all of the inputs and how they relate to this, to this can, something like that. Um, but if I say something abstract, you know, if I say Moby Dick, what do I mean by that? Like, like I knew totally what you meant when we were talking about that can of cola. But what do we mean when I say something completely abstract? So, so when I say Moby Dick, do I mean, you know, I don't know, the book? Do I mean all the books? Do I mean the pattern that is Moby Dick? 
you know, the, 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 the abstract information? What do I mean by that? There is no identity. We don't get it for free. And so when you and I are talking about it, we may not know what we're talking about. We may not be talking about the same thing. We might have information that's really valuable that we don't realize relates to what you're doing. And multiply that by a trillion. Okay, so, so uh, many arguments in the world are actually, and many of the discussions that we all have and many of the research discoveries that we make are, are, are stilted when we don't even know we're talking about the same thing because we can't see those patterns. It's kind of like you know, the elephant that the, the blind men walk up to, right? And one blind man grabs a hold of the tail. He says, obviously, it's a snake. Another one grabs the leg and says, it's a pillar. Another one hits into the belly and says, clearly, this is a wall, right? So each of them thinks something entirely different. Um, and in reality, they don't understand they're actually talking about the same thing. So how can they collaborate? How can they do better? How can they actually make something happen in the world? It is possible to give universal identity. In fact, books are one of the things that the Internet tackled first, you know, Amazon and things like that, because you know, we've been working on it since, since like the 1600s or before. right? We, we figured out ISBN numbers and a way to actually think about kind of giving identity to books. Um, it didn't necessarily translate all the way into the digital space, but it was pretty good. You can do this, though. There, there, there are very well-known patterns in computer science called universally unique identifiers. And here's an example of one. It's just a really big number. If you generate a really big number that's kind of random, you have a really good chance of having nobody else in the entire universe having that same number. It's really pretty, pretty likely. So you can generate a number about that long, and it'll be universally unique in the entire universe. So that's, that's one way that we can start to think about it. We're not doing that today, by the way. Um, so that, that's the physics level. Let's go up one level to chemistry. One of the things that's interesting about chemistry is you get something called architecture. You actually get to see kind of how things relate, and you understand the constants and the variables. You know, there are, there's this great periodic table that we got from physics that we can start recombining things, and we can make materials. And we know that some materials won't go together with others because we can define that. If we look at this periodic chart, it was developed by Mendeleev back in the, in the 1800s. He only knew these top gray ones. But he predicted all the rest. Because architecture lets you predict the future. It lets you actually future-proof. Because you understand the constants and variables, you can start filling them in. The ones in, in green, uh, aqua, actually got discovered a little later. The ones in gray, uh, actually the ones in purple got discovered later. By about the 1950s, we had discovered these light purple ones. And, and they fit perfectly, pretty much perfectly, into this, into this architecture. So it allowed us to predict the future. It allowed us to future-proof to some extent. And it allowed us to start mixing and matching and making things. So architecture is another building block from nature. I'm going to go up one more level, biology. This is where it gets really interesting. And I've got some things here that may not make sense. So you probably don't hear containerization a lot in biology lectures. Um, but let me explain why I'm going, to, I'm going to call it that way. So the first thing I want to talk about is containerization. DNA is this container. And it holds pretty much like all the information to generate a life. You know, it's this, it's this very simple container. Um, and, and let me tell you about a few of the things that it has. It has universally unique identity. It gets it for free because of atoms. Um, it also is this kind of standardized container. Everything that's alive in the world uses the same DNA, uses the same stuff. It's completely interchangeable between species. Right? We're able to do things like make goats give us you know, human milk and things like that and give us, give us medicines and things because it's this, this, this amazingly simple format that everybody shares. Um, it's also mutable. That means that you can change it over time because you can't predict the future. You want to be able to glue stuff on. 
So when you look at DNA, you'll actually find that people have kind of glued, not people, organisms have sort of stitched things together as they need new protection, as they need new ways of doing things. They're recombining. So this is, this is another thing. So let's look to see you know, if we can find a pattern like this in the real world. It turns out something very prosaic, very basic. The shipping container. Just a real shipping container. Uh, now, I don't know if anybody was around before shipping containers came out, but before shipping containers were used, and this is fairly recent, they really got their steam in the 60s, um, people at, uh, at the docks were longshoremen, and they had to make sure they didn't put like the bananas underneath the heavy stuff. So they had to custom pack every single thing. They had to custom pack the trucks. They had to custom pack the ships. And worldwide commerce did not really exist. It cost too much to actually have a flat world. But then they invented this 8-foot-by-8-foot-by-16-foot box. Simple container. You can shove anything into it so it's extensible, right? It's easy. And now you can do things like design a little derrick that picks it up. You can design ships. You don't need to know what's inside the box. You can design ships to pile up those containers. You can design trucks to pull them away. You don't need to know anything about them. Just pick up this box and use it if you can. So a very simple, low-level container. In his book, The Box, which actually explains the amazing innovation of, of the container, which doesn't sound very sexy or anything, but it's actually, it created what now Thomas Friedman can start talking about, the world is flat. It was the first thing that needed to happen. It dropped the price of, of shipping. This is interesting from the book. In the decade after it was first started to be used internationally, so in 1966, the volume of trade grew twice as fast as the volume of production and two and a half times as global output. So just because people could shuffle things around, you suddenly had this explosion of creativity, explosion of business and market value because you had this simple container. So we talked about containerization. Let me talk about liquidity. So liquid currency turns out to be something that's really important for every single complex system. Um, You know, back, back in the old days, we would barter, right? I want to trade this sheep for, you know, 36 yards of fabric. Um, and, and a barter economy doesn't let you remove the, separate the value from the actual thing. So it only works really in small places. Um, you, can't, you can't really get too far with like one lamb is worth 36 yards. I, I will claim, I think that's what's happening on the web today. We're living in a barter economy. So, so this was a giant shift. The idea of a liquid currency that you could interchange with people, that you could do things. It was a huge shift in economics. In Britain, they actually hired the guy who was the smartest guy on the planet, who is one of the t- maybe three or four smartest people who have ever lived to be the head of the Bank of England back in the 1600s to figure this out. His name was Isaac Newton, and he was the head of the Bank of England at the times that they were starting to figure this out. That's how important it was. So liquid currency allows you to do things like just to have a ton of stuff Breeding, changing, playing, Legos snapping back together again. It allows, again, worldwide commerce and economics. They don't call it the gene pool for nothing, right? I mean, the reason we call it a gene pool is because these boxes, these containers DNA, are all over the place. You can't, you can't move without tripping over spare DNA. Um, that didn't come out right. But here's an interesting point. Craig Ventner, who, who just you know, built the first completely synthetic organism, um, he just goes out and starts scooping up barrelfuls of water in the ocean. And this is what he finds. It was thought originally that pigments in our eye, you know, the ones that actually detect whether we should have blue eyes, that there were only two, one or two organisms that had that same pigment. Uh, it turns out almost every species in the upper part of the ocean in warm parts of the world have the same photoreceptors and use sunlight as a source of energy and communication. Everything, mostly everything, has the same thing that makes our eyes blue. 
And in fact, when he did one barrel of water, he found 1.3 million new genes that nobody had ever seen before. And they found 50,000 new species that nobody had ever seen before. Now, he, he went on kind of an HMS Beagle-style thing just a few years ago, and he started doing this. And this is actually what helped him build a synthetic organism. There's so much out there. So it led to the, the Cambrian explosion. You know, you've heard about that. Amazing birth and growth of amazing different kinds of organisms and things. Experimentation a long time ago that we've seen in the fossil record. This came from that. So, you know, we've got universal identity, we've got standardized container, we've got this. Oh, yeah, it also needs to be able to be trivially evaluated. You know, we can actually use RNA and other things to figure out what this is. And replicated. Cell division replicates this stuff. It's like memory is really free in the, in the natural world, and you can get it all over the place. So have we done anything like this in the computing world? Do we have anything like that? Do we have anything with the standardized container or the other kinds of things? I would say no. Nothing, nothing at any kind of scale. Yet every complex system that we look at has to have it to survive. So what do we have? Down at the low level, really the basic level of computing, we totally have it. This is actually the fun part. Um, bits and bytes are liquid currency. Everybody uses them. It just works. So at the very low level, it works. Packets on the Internet, they just work. It's a very liquid currency. But there's nothing on the web that's a liquid currency. You know, somebody might say, well, it's the URL, you know, the, the, the HTTP thing. Well, you know, that's only dependent on whether the guy keeps that server running, you know, and it's not universal, and it's, it's, it's just not something you can refer to. Um, people say maybe it's databases. Well, databases are 40-year-old technology, and you can't separate the content from the actual, from the database. It's, it's completely impossible. So, so that's a problem as well. People talk about the semantic web, doesn't have universal identity. Isn't, it's actually too complicated. It's a wonderful idea, too complicated. So liquid currency. P to P. Um, I didn't quite understand what P to P meant, um, but peer to peer. So uh, we, we usually think about peer to peer when we talk about people stealing music, like Napster. And so it ended up getting a pretty politically bad rap, although it's the way everything in nature works. And it's the only way you can scale to unbounded complexity. So if you want resilience and you want scale, you need to do peer to peer. And if, and if we look at it, you know, um, I didn't understand this. So I said, well, give me an example of peer-to-peer. -peer. And, and I asked uh, the founder of our company, uh, Dr. Lucas. I said, give me an example. He said, well, Moby Dick. Moby Dick's an example of peer-to-peer. -peer. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, um, you cannot get rid of Moby Dick. It's massively replicated by this peer-to-peer -peer system called the public library. It is every single library is a client. Every single library is a server. You can go to any library and ask for Moby Dick. You'll get it. Even if they don't have it, it'll show up because they can ask for it. And they store it. They store it all over the place. You could try getting rid of Moby Dick. You never would. There's just too many of them. You could try 50 years from now. You still couldn't get rid of them all. So it's a peer-to-peer -peer system. We learned our lesson because in the, the library of, of Alexandria, we lost everything. Now we massively replicate. <laughs> right? It's the only way you can do it. You know, here's what you know, kind of people, people do. You, you read, if, if you go to most, many... Research papers or books that, that have been written in the last five years, you will see references at the bottom of the, at the back of the book that are HTTP something, 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 something. What percentage of those HTTPs do you think you'll be able to resolve in 20 years? Does anybody have an idea? What percentage will you actually be able to you know, click on and still get that, that link in 20 years? Most people I talk to, what? What do you think? 0.1%. Yeah, that's right. Nothing. You won't be able to resolve those links. We're erasing the carpet behind us. We're erasing our paths. We're, we're completely throwing them away. 
And, and so this is true, right? I can still resolve, I bet you, and I'll take the bet from anybody, I'll, I can resolve any, if you ask me about Moby Dick, I can resolve it in 20 years, I can resolve it in 50 years. Even if nobody does print anymore, I can do it, because it's been massively replicated. It's the same reason we've got so many genes in the world that we can find and exploit. Humans do it. Massive replication. Every damn cell in our body has a copy to make us. The whole thing. All of us. Right? Every cell. Massive replication. And if you think about it, right, I've got it replicated everywhere. My ear, my toe. But the interesting thing here is, too, um, it's also peer-to-peer in another way. My skin, the skin cell on my toe does not communicate directly to my ear cell. Right? It's not like some client-server or centralized thing that we all talk. It mostly talks to its buddies. Right? And it's mostly peer-to-peer. It's just talking with its buddies. And this is the way complex systems are built. You know, and if we look at, again, the future, and we think, what's the implication of this? You know, one of the articles that obviously not a journalist wrote, because journalism is dead in the future, according to one of the other talks. Um, but a whole generation almost loses their most precious memories because of the shoebox dark age. So think of this right now. There is a whole generation, my son is one of them, that have never stored a picture in a box in the basement. The minute they take it, it goes to Flickr. The minute they take it, it goes to Facebook. It'll be there. You know, the picture of their baby being born, the picture of them getting married, sure, it'll be there. It won't be there. We're probably going to have a shoebox dark age. In December, Microsoft sent a note out to all of their owners of their smartphone, the sidekick. And they said, oops, we lost all your pictures, all your phone numbers, all your contacts, all your calendar information, all your notes. Sorry. You know, and some people were offered maybe a $100 gift certificate. Right? So that actually happened. Microsoft. And they're a good company. I'm, I, I'm not in any way slamming them. They, they really know what their business. They bought that company, Sidekick. Maybe there were some, some issues with that. But even the people who paid the extra $10 a month for data backup lost it. Now, there's a good, there's a good ending to this story. Right? But for a week, people were sitting there trying to recapitulate these things that were unreplaceable. About a week later, Every day, they started trying. They sent forensic specialists in to try to figure out how to get this data back, and they actually re, they captured most of the data back. So they did succeed. But think about the stark terror of an entire population of people who had sidekicks. I read a story recently about a woman whose son died in Iraq, and he was using AOL uh, to to write and blog and to put in all his own creative writing for years. You know, he had, ever since he kind of got on AOL, and he went away. He died. So she would go to this, to this site that he had built that was all his beautiful creative writing as solace. One day, it was gone. She clicked on it, and it was gone. She called AOL. She, called, she fought to find the product manager. He said, I know. I'm sorry. It's gone. I can't get it back for you. It's a true story. So, so this is what's happening because we're not doing those things. You know, we've got this, we've got this, we don't have this. But, you know, what if we did? So let me talk a little bit about some of the research we've been doing. What if you had a little container that you could do things with? So we, we came up with one. We called it the U-form, universal form. You know, think of it as that. Very simple. Um, we said, let's go steal things. We'll steal U-form, uh, universal identity. People have invented that. It's just a long number. Um, let's, let's let you just throw in attributes and values, whatever you want. You know, the name of the elephant is Banksy. He's 13 feet four, and he weighs 15,000 pounds. He's a big fellow. Um, and his family can link to another place so you can actually have a web of these things. And it's mutable. You could add things to the bottom to your heart's content because we don't know what the future is. So we're not going to be like database designers who think we can predict what the world will look like tomorrow because we can't. We'll just let you glue new stuff onto it. 
So what if something terrible happened, like a disaster, you know, another Katrina, 15, 20 years from now, and we actually did adopt something very simple, just like the bit in the bite, one more level up called the U-form. Anita was devastated in this disaster. She lost everything. Her next-door neighbor, Leroy, was the sheriff of the small community that she lives in. He lost everything, too. But you know what? That teddy bear, it's got a little bit of, uh, of, of some of his marriage license, and it's got some of his baby pictures, and so does that car. And so does the refrigerator that he found in his, in his garage. And, and so does her uh, set of shoes and some of her, some of her clothing, clothing. It's actually got replication of pretty much everything for, for all of her life and all of his. And he even had a, a, you know, his police station burned down. And he was able to recapitulate community information and the Library of Congress just by cobbling together these things that were around us. And that may sound silly, that may sound fantastical, but any cell on my body has all the information to recapitulate me. Is that too much to ask when memory costs nothing today? So, so that's the potential that we could have. Peer-to-peer. If we go up one more level, psychology. Is this good? Am I talking too fast? Too slow? I know it's like nap time. Um, so, Psychology. Now, at some point, these organisms started to think. This was a pretty exciting day. And in fact, one of the biggest things that happened in the world was humans learned how to read. The written word was an incredible shift. And our minds began actually being self-aware and understanding the world. And there are some amazing patterns there as well. So let's look at humans 100 years ago. That's a human. That's all the information in the world, that little purple dot. That's all the information we've collected. It was all stored in books 100 years ago. And you had to be rich because there weren't public libraries in many places. You had to know somebody rich or, or go to the university to find the books. But if you wanted to, you could read every book about one topic in your lifetime. It was possible. You could read every book. In fact, I think, I think if you go back two centuries, there was a guy who owned every book that, was, that, that had been published. <clears throat> um, so, great. 100 years ago, we could read everything about a particular topic. Let's fast forward uh, and see how, how we're coping with this explosion. Because you know what's happened. The amount of information has exploded. We had radio, then television, then the internet. Metcalf's Law, one of the guys who helped build this, he said every time you add a node to the network, you exponentially increase the number of connections. So we now are at the point where we are doubling all the information humankind has ever created every two years. And it's accelerating. That means probably a lot of garbage, too. But... Like it or not, everybody's phone, everybody's mouse has a camera. Everything has sensing, and it's all capturing stuff. So how quickly do we evolve? How quickly do we add features? Let's, let's graph it. In 100 years, how many new features do we add to be able to cope with all that complexity? Well, here's the problem. It's almost a flat line. We don't add extra brains in 100 years. My brain is no bigger than my grandfather's brain. You know, it, we just don't evolve that quickly. So, so how are we closing this gap? And a lot of people will tell me, and I think that's partly true, they'll say, well, you know, we're about here, and our kids, man, they're digital natives. They get it. They're closing this gap. And in, tr- in fact, it's true. Brains, when you're young, are incredibly plastic. And you can really evolve quickly at sort of a, a basic level. You can close this gap. You are not closing this gap. It's not happening. And it turns out that kids are not actually even closing the gap that we talked about. So uh, there was a study, and this is a fascinating study in London, 20-year-old kids, they gave them an IQ test. One group, IQ test, no distractions. They gave another group an IQ test, but first they had them smoke some marijuana. I'm not making any claims about it, but they smoked some marijuana. 
The third group, they let them do whatever they wanted while they took the IQ test. And of course, everybody had like cell phones and they were Twittering and tweeting and Facebooking and et cetera-ing. Um, and then they looked at the actual results of the IQ tests. The kids who had smoked marijuana had a maybe two to four point drop in their IQ. You guys all probably know that. The, 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 kids, who, the kids who actually um, did whatever they wanted, multitask because they're so amazingly good at it because they're digital natives, had between an 8 and a 14% intelligence drop. Right? All of us. In fact, anybody who's tweeting right now, feel sorry for them, everybody, because they're kind of stupider than you right now. It'll come back, but they're kind of stupider. And when you're in a meeting and a CEO of a company is, is checking his email while you're having an important meeting, he should be fired because he is stupid at that point. We just don't do it. We cannot multitask. If you look at an 18-year-old kid driving a car with a hands-free cell phone, he has the reaction time of an 80-year-old man. We just don't evolve that quickly. So I would posit that the gap right here, the ability for us to cope with all the information, is another thing we have to think about. And in fact, this is probably one of the most important areas for innovation. It's where Apple's making all their money. It's where Nintendo's making all their money. Making it so damn easy to use amazingly cool things to do things where, you know, Nintendo's got games that 60-year-olds use. And don't even think about it, you know, because it's so easy. So they've started thinking about this. How do we make it easy? A fellow from the... Harvard Business Review said this, and I think it's really great. The danger from computers is not that they will eventually get as smart as men, but that we will, meanwhile, agree to meet them halfway. And I think that's one of the dangers. We'll get stupider because, because we're going we're gonna to be effectively servants to these, to these computers. And we already are. We're, we're certainly fixing things more than we use them, and it's getting, and it's getting worse. But there are actually some tricks. You know, we, we were evolving... For a lot of million years, this line wasn't just always here. It actually was lower. We've evolved some incredible stunts to cope with complexity. I'll give you one or two. Just little, little patterns that I think are, are pretty fascinating. So here's a desk. It's got stuff piled all over it. How many people pile things? Pilers? Come on. I know you do. Okay. So, so piling is an interesting thing. We did a study in 1989, 1990, where we actually wandered around to offices around the world, around the country, and we, we drew sketches. There weren't you know, digital cameras that were that easily accessible. Of people's desks, how they piled, how they filed, how they loosely coupled things in piles, how they tightly coupled things with staples in piles. Um, we actually videotaped people when you walked in the meeting. John, where's that report? Their eyes would snap over halfway down, and they'd pull it out without even thinking. It's effectively pre-conscious. They just do it. We use the space to remember. We use physical space to remember. So this is a, a phenomenon that we started calling where it is is what it is. Where something is at physically is what it is inside of your head. It's how you index. So humans can only remember maybe seven things, right? A telephone number is seven digits long, so you can remember it. Seven plus or minus two. That's kind of pop psychology, but in reality, it's, a, it's approximately that in, in Western tongues. So... We're talking about you don't have a lot of memory. People come in with a PowerPoint slideshow like mine. 50,000 slides, all these bullets. And then you're supposed to brainstorm and create and come up with new ideas. But you're going to remember seven. It doesn't work. But the space remembers. When you draw things on the wall, they remember. So this is interesting. We've got rooms like this. They're 360-degree whiteboards. And in the morning, we start at, the, at this side, and it's like a clock all day long. And every time somebody shows the slides, we draw. We draw, we draw, we force them to draw. Everybody draws. What happens halfway through the day is somebody says, oh, what was that thing we talked about over there? What if, we, what if we took that and we took that? And when we took that, suddenly they can recombine far more things because they've indexed. It turns out we can index 10, 50, 100, sometimes 1,000 things in physical space without any problems. Humans are just naturally good at this. Every human is naturally good at this. 
So some companies are taking advantage of this. Apple's one of them. When you use an iPad and you're looking for your picture, you're like, oh, I think it's up over there. Oh, wait, no, no, it's over there. You're skidding across a giant sheet of paper. It's where it is is what it is. You're thinking about it as a physical space. That's why it works. It makes you feel really smart. It makes you feel like they're really smart. So, you know, here's the trick, though. We've been evolving that feature for a really long time. Have you guys ever seen squirrels find food, like, after six months that they buried it? They find it. Everything in the animal kingdom does this, right? So, yay, Apple. You were able to do something that squirrels have been doing for a long time. You took advantage of it, finally. There's a whole bunch of those. I, I could go on all day about these, but I just wanted to point out one example that would help us cope with that explosion is go back and look at the things we do, we do well. Herb Simon said something really interesting. Um, he said, think of the mind as a pair of scissors. And there are two blades. One blade is your brain. It's where all that cognition happens. But the other blade is the environment your brain, your brain pushes against. You know, a scissors won't cut unless it's got something to push against. And the environment has a lot of complexity, too. And if you can take advantage of it, like a physical wall, right all over it. Let the room do some of the work for you. So when you see ants wandering around, and they're you know, building castles and fighting wars, and they're doing, they've got like a handful of neurons. They do not have much brain. How are they doing that? Well, the reality is the environment is crazy complex, and they're pushing against the environment with some very simple rules. So that's what's happening. And we need to kind of take advantage of that where we can. The environment is going to turn out to be one of the most important things we do in the future. In the trillion node world, everything will be based on the environment. We will touch things. We will live within the sea of information because that's what we've evolved for millions of years. One more. Uh, manipulating things, actually, still in the psychology thing. It turns out humans love making things and picking things up. You know, they're really good at picking stuff up and moving it around and piling things. They trust physics that it'll stay there and it won't float away. You know, there's all sorts of really cool things that happen with thingness. And we've been doing things with thingness for millions of years. We're really good at things. So that's actually a design pattern. Could we take advantage of that in computing systems? So we did another research project, and that was about could you build an interface that was information-centric, where the information itself was the interface. You could pick it up like a thing. You could pick it up like off of a bar chart, just dump it on a map. If it's got mappiness, it shows up. And that's kind of the way humans work, right? I pick up a piece of fabric, I dump it in a bucket of water. Suddenly it gets like sluggish and heavy. I take it out, I put it in the, fridge, the freezer, right? Then it gets like stiff and brittle. I hit it with a hammer, it shatters. That's how we learn. That's how we do things. We just work with objects. And so we said, what if you could do this? What could you take those U-forms we talked about, you know, universal identity. There's only one in the entire universe. But let people pick it up and dump it over here and see it as a name. Let them pick it up and dump it over here. Let them pick it up and dump it over there. And, and, and just be able to deal with things the way humans deal with things. So I'm going to give you a little demonstration of what that means. If you take liquidity, if you take peer-to-peer, if you take universal identity, if you take containerization, architecture, direct manipulation, how the mind works with a physical environment, and you actually start doing something with it. So here's a project um, that was done in, in, uh, in the 1800s. It's a famous visualization of Napoleon uh, sort of crushing defeat against Russia. And this was uh, popularized. It's actually by a guy named Charles Menard. It was popularized in a book by Edward Tufte about visualization. He was trying to visualize how people marched and what happened. And people are really good with visuals, too. So could you take advantage of that? So I'm going to do a little demo. Here's a system based on everything I just said. Um, everything's an object. There's only one of them in the entire universe, so we know we're talking about the same thing, so you can collaborate. Everything is data. There is no metadata except for the universal identity because your data is my metadata. We don't know what people will use in the future. 
So let me go ahead and click on this if I can get it, if I can get it to play. Really? This is the way technology is going to play me today? Okay, so here's Napoleon's battles. Um, each, each, each line there is actually a little container. And it's got the, the day the battle happened. It's got the French commander, the losses. This is some data that was collected. Where it was happening, the location, the latitude, longitude, whether they won or lost. Um, things like that. So here's, here's a bunch of data somebody collected. I'm going to go ahead and select all of those buckets. And I'm just going to pull out a map, physically, and I'm going to grab a hold of all that data. And the map doesn't know anything. It's really a stupid organism. Think of it as one of these like one-celled organisms. But I'm going to pick it up, dump it on the map. And what's going to happen is the map's going to go, oops, I don't understand anything else, but I do understand latitude and longitude, so let me show you that. And I do understand names, so let me show you that. And it tries to bind the, the visualization at the time you render it, not you know, back by when the designer decided to design it, so that I can do it. So let me keep going. Now I'm going to tune this a little bit. Let me zoom in here. Maybe I want to find out more information. So I can go in here. I'm not writing any code. I'm not doing anything. And this will make sense when we get to the end. I'm going to go change the text. I'll just come up here. It automatically populates the, the text. And I'm going to change it to the location so I can just read the location. Uh, maybe I'll come in here and I'll add an extra graphic because I want to understand who won and who lost. So I'll just go casually go in there. I'm going to add a graphic. Um, you know, there it is. Maybe I want to move it around. Let me just kind of organize this a bit. I'm going to pull it down. It's all direct manipulation. I'm just picking things up and doing things. And I want to tell that graphic to show me who won. So I'll come over here and say, show me the outcomes. So now I get a down arrow if it's a loss, a, a sideways arrow if it's a, if it's a draw, and an up arrow if it's, a, if it's a win, right? So now I've started to understand this visual and this data much better. Um, you know, maybe I'll pull those arrows kind of to the foreground just so we can see them. So, so I've kind of tuned this a little bit. I'm teaching this simple organism a little bit more stuff. Maybe I even want to set those dots to be the outcome. I could do the same thing, color code the dots. Just do that. That's great. Okay, so now I've got the color coding of the dots. Here's a totally different data set, designed by a totally different guy, collected by a totally different thing, but universal identity. Those are all buckets, but they've got totally different things. So let's take a look at what this thing has. Um, this is sort of bar chart segments. There's an ending latitude, a beginning latitude. This is kind of as they marched. Did they cross a river? Not the battles, but when they were marching. Um, you know, when did they start? When did they end? What was the temperature? You know, did they, did they uh, gain troops, lose troops? Totally different data. Um, so this is entirely different data, and I'm just a monkey who's going to experiment by picking things up because that's what humans do, and that's what, that's what we all do. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just select all this stuff, too, and try to drag it on the map. I'll actually tell you now it won't work. Maps don't understand bar charts. They just don't have the genetic code to understand bar charts. But I'll try it. You know, I'm, I'm, all, for, I'm all game for this, right? So I'll learn it. There's actually this, this thing over here. Um, it's called a timeout box. When it can't understand something, it just throws the buckets over to the side, these containers. It doesn't get rid of them because things shouldn't just disappear. I shouldn't you know, put this here and it magically is gone from the universe. It just says I don't know how to deal with it. So I'll, I'll go ahead and try it. I'll drink, drag it over. And it can't understand it. It, it puts a little uh, orange exclamation mark up there. It, maybe it put it on there, but it put like the bars vertically you know, because it just had the latitude and longitude. We don't know. And it tells me why. It says, look, this thing is a segment. I don't know what a segment is. Nobody taught me what segments were. I'm a stupid organism. Um, but you could still grab them. You could pull them right back out again. They're just, they're just a container that has that information. Okay. Let's try to find something that does understand it. Uh, bar charts actually understand bar data. So let's, let's try that. So I pull out a bar chart. This is another little simple organism. Got some genes. 
I grab a hold of all those segments again and I dump them on the bar chart. So it tries to guess. It says start date by troops. It's a terrible guess. It doesn't know much about the data. So I could tune it. I could come in here and replace the attributes. I'm not even sure what a good attribute would be because I don't understand this data. Humans you know, don't net natively understand data and information. But I can tinker. Maybe I can set this bar. I'll make the thickness equal to the number of troops. So like a thick bar would be a lot of troops. So I'll just try that. Thick bar, a lot of troops. That's pretty good. Um, maybe I can set the color of the bar to the temperature, because I know temperature is like a color spectrum, right? Blue is really cold, red is really hot. So I'll go ahead and do that. I'll set the color to temperature. Now, this is still pretty nonsensical. I can't make any sense of it. If you can, I don't know where, what, you know, you're, you're probably a lot smarter than I. But what I can do now is I can steal its genetic code. Remember, we've got common currency. We've got these DNA things. We can just pick up DNA and move it around. So I'll come over here and I'll manage, I'll come over and I'll extract its symbolic blueprint, its little DNA module. I'm just going to steal its understanding of barness. Um, so I'll go ahead and steal it. That's great. So now I'm going to come over to the map. I'm going to teach the map. So this is recombinant visualizations. Okay, I'm taking a little bit of genes from here, a little bit of genes from here. I'm building something brand new. So I'll go ahead and I dump it in here and I teach it. And now it pulls the stuff out of the timeout box and it lays it on there. And oh, by the way, it's got latitude and longitude. So it can put the bars on the latitude and longitude. So now I've got a visualization that's very similar to Menard's visualization. But I didn't need to write any code. I didn't need to do anything. It just automatically worked. Right? So maybe I'll organize it a bit, uh, push the bars on the Z dimension so that they're not blocking the text. I'll just push them all the way down. Maybe I'll actually organize them by, by start date. You know, Because I know he started marching. There's a time element. Let me do that. So I'll take these guys and say, put the oldest march at the bottom, because I can kind of see when the dates are. So I'll organize them by start on the Z dimension. Go ahead and do that. And that's actually pretty good. Now I've got Napoleon's visualization. I've built it in a few minutes, a brand new tool from recombinant data. I've been able to explore it ways that the database designer never thought of. These are brand new organisms. Um, but there's more I can do with it, right? And this is maybe where it gets interesting. Um, I can do things like pull down and tune it. I can say, now I want to watch it over time. I can animate this. So I'll say, give me those, uh, give me those March segments, give me by date, give me a range slider. This is something called dynamic query. So now I can query through the pool of information in the world, the gene pool, and be able to see. So I'll grab the slider, I'll wind back the clock, and now I can actually watch Napoleon's march. Right? So now I built something where I can see, look, he had a bunch of people, right? a little group split off. These guys kept marching. Oh, wait, look, they kept losing people. Look, it's getting skinnier and skinnier. They had their first battle. They lost like half their people before their first battle, and it was in the summer. A lot of people thought he lost a lot of his people in the crushing Russian winter. Right? And then they hang out. They have a draw. They have a big win in Bordino, and then they all retreat. Right? So now I'm able to actually really make sense of this in the way humans understand things. I built it in like five minutes. All right? So, so this is what you get with gene pools. This is what you get with this, this sort of amazing ability to morph and play but, of course, there's more because it's, it's information-centric. So let's go ahead and do one or two more things on this. I can grab a hold of this bar, and I'm, I want to know about this march. I'll mark it yellow. It automatically marks yellow everywhere else because it's just one object in the whole universe. So you could be looking at it on a bar chart. I could be looking at it on a map. Somebody else could be looking at it on a table. And when I'm on the phone talking to you about it, we know we're talking about the same thing. We're not spending half of our time just trying to imagine what you're talking about. I could do some other things with it. You know, I could come in here and I could decide, well, I want to ink something. You know, I want to draw a path that I want to fly over a robot plane. So I ink it. Ink is data too, right? Everything is data. Everything is in these containers. It's genetic code. 
So I could do things like pick up the ink, I could drag the ink over. If I put in a table, I'd find the latitude and longitude, I'd find out who drew it. Everything is, human intent is data, why wouldn't we capture that? So I can do things like tune it, I can adjust it, I can do stuff like that. Everything is information. I can pull it out, I can give it names, I can do other things. So I did all this, I built this brand new tool, I've kind of created some kind of new genetic organism that can actually understand data in a new way. It took me a few minutes, really pretty simple. So um, what can I do with that? Let's see if I'm on the right one. Um, let me pick all this stuff up and throw it away. It's objects, I can just pick it all up, I just built a brand new tool and now I'm gonna throw away the stuff I was using to test with. So I toss it in the garbage, um, you know, maybe I'll just, I'll just um, clean this stuff up, get rid of this stuff. Uh, so here's a new tool I just built, and I could go and do things like um, maybe I want to build a new dashboard, so I'm going to put this tool in a dashboard. Nested containment, layered complexity, I can just kind of keep going. I'll pick up a container, I'll toss it into it, so now I'm building a brand new whole application. I push it in there, so now I, I just push it down into that, that U-form. Um, maybe I go out and get a sticky note because I want to have a chat. Remember, this is, there's only one sticky note in the universe like this, so you can have chats on every single piece of data that exists in the entire world. Um, maybe I want to name it something, Mix Cool Menard Tool. I just built a brand new tool, I want to name it. So go ahead and do that. You know, and, and maybe I want to add other things. I might put a timeline on there, a network diagram. I might want to you know, build something that would do my tasks. So I'm doing this. Um, you know, so I'll go through, I'll pull out a scheduler. You know, these are all sort of basic organisms that, that understand things, just little bits of genes and DNA. Maybe I'll pull out a network diagram. I want to see how Napoleon is related to the people he, you know, fought. I don't know. Probably was. So now I've built a brand new tool, and I can do things like drag it into shared products. Just like anything else, since it's one liquid information flow, I can pick it up. I can actually copy it, and if you had it on your desktop and I started collaborating with you, it would be collaborative right out of the box. Right? If I draw, it draws over there. So we're actually having a conversation because there's only one of these in the universe. So just casually doing this. Um, I can also do things like drag it into a shared product. That's sort of this thing over here. You know, make it my dashboard. Now 10,000, a million other people have it as genetic code that they can build on top of. So I see this new tool. Now I can build it. It's, it's been thrown into the gene pool, and the ones that are the most successful bubble to the top. So this isn't just a laboratory experiment, um, and, I, and I wanted to point that out as well. This uh, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Programs Agency, when we built this, you know, those are the guys who built the ARPANET, later called the Internet. When we built this, um, uh, it's used for roadside bomb clearance, it's used for IEDs, it's used 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, people build features in here in two or three minutes or four hours. The old system, which cost a billion dollars, took three years to get a new feature in. So the, the guys are now able to put new features in in minutes. It is widely deployed last year. It won the best net-centric application for the government, and DARPA awarded its highest honors as the best success of actually transitioning. It's in use. It's been in use since 2004. This isn't new. And it's all based on, on organic stuff. It's never been turned off, and, and it's going every day. This system, by the way, because it uses all visuals, it uses things humans know. The old system took two weeks to learn how to use. This system, four hours to six hours, and you can use it. This system... 400% increase in decisions and collaborative mission planning. 400% and 300% increase in situational awareness, sort of understanding where the world is. So now it's starting to be used for all sorts of things, transportation logistics during, during disasters, uh, drug discovery, figuring out what drugs should go into clinical trials, 
Um, but it's an example of what could happen if we start taking all of these building blocks and building on top of them. So I wanted to make sure I gave you guys a little bit of time for questions, if you're still with me. Anybody with me? Um, I, I didn't touch on ecology, and I think I'll just point to one thing that I don't think people talk about in the ecology space. There's a ton of them. Mutualism. You probably haven't even heard of that, or, or just sounds like a made-up word. It's actually one kind of symbiosis. We mostly hear about like parasitism, being parasites, something. But most of symbiosis in the world is mutualism. If you look at the, uh, the aspen trees, they, they have this thing called a, a mycorrhizal network. It's actually under the surface. Of the, it's indivisible. It's a network. And it actually transports stuff between species and between plants. They've tracked electrical signals for miles. Um, and, and aspens, many aspens are actually just one tree. They just have this rhizal network underneath. There's one in Utah that's 80,000 years old. Pengo. At least 80,000 years old. Right? So look at that resiliency. Pretty damn good resiliency. Right? And rhizal networks are everywhere. It turns out that rhizal networks are in 80% of all the plant species in the world. It's actually a fungus. And it grows in, and it shoots in little teeny shoots into the roots. And it grows between different kinds of plants. And it gives the plants nutrients it can't get from the soil. And it gets sugars and things like that. It's completely mutual. And it creates this network, a commons effect. So this is a really interesting thing. We've actually started a new company called Ryza that focuses on these rhizal networks. But they're working down in the Amazon rainforest to help tribes document tree deforestation. So, so there's all this amazing stuff, commons of information, this is a commons out there that's, that's working, and it gives us this amazing fecundity in the world. Um, so, so I wanted to touch on that. Um, now I'd like to you know, just sort of take questions and see, see if there's anybody that has a question or if this made any sense to anybody. Right. Um, in the model that you were showing where there was a unique identifier mm -hmm. Good question. So um, most of the systems that we've been building and, and experimenting with and, and working with our partners on are, are massively distributed, but one of the big things is model translators, pulling in stuff from old world, attaching universal identifiers to them, putting them into containers, and then freeing them into the commons. So one, one group paid us to put in the census data, and now it's just there. Another group can hinge other information onto that. They can grab their data about toxic releases that they don't have census data about, toss it in, now it's a commons. So, so much of the work that's done is actually that fusion of old stuff as well. So, you know, the, the army system that's deployed, you know, there's a ton of old stuff. And every RFID on every single shipping crate is tracked every day. Every cloud in the sky, everything, it's just constantly growing. Um, so so that's, all, that's all something you have to deal with, with the stuff that exists today. Um, and there are ways to do it. It's not trivial, by the way, because there's not much structure to it, you know, or there's too much structure in some ways. But, but it's a common problem um, in, in the world. In your demonstration, how is that not dependent on coding and software and, and you know, sharing networks? I mean, I can't just take my notebook and pull up one of those universal IDs and, and start working with it. Not yet, no. Um, I think, you know... Uh, of course, under the scenes, there's a platform, right? It, and there's, there's a platform. But it's been, it's been built from the ground up as an ecological platform. So, so that's the important point. Pardon me? But how does it become a universal platform? That's, 
Well, the interesting question here is it doesn't have to become a universal platform. So, so the Moore Foundation, the Amazon conservation team are taking it, using it with open, open kit uh, Google software, putting it on Android's phones and allowing tribes to take pictures of rain tree forest uh, trees, flow it up to Google Earth in a second, and start competing in a carbon credits market instead of just being rewarded for logging and, and, and things like that and bribery. And all they have to do is understand one thing, that container, that's it. You can write any code you want. You just open up the container and look at it, just like you can write any shipping, you know, any truck, as long as you're 8 foot by 8 foot by 16, it'll work. You can build, that's what led to that, was this sort of, and it is, I mean, it's like, why, why don't we do this? This is, this is what happens if you really want to get to the next mountain. It's interesting. So the packets and the bits and the bytes have actually helped us mask the horrible stuff being built on the web. And because there's so much power out there, Moore's Law is so damn good. And because the internet was so built, so built amazingly well that the packet structure and the bit and the byte structure hides a lot of this. But it's actually the wrong level of abstraction. It just doesn't work for those kinds of things. It's too, it's too specific on things. And, and, it, and it shouldn't know about stuff upwards, right? Atoms shouldn't know how they're used to be building things. That's, that's bad semantic layering. So, so I think that there's amazing stuff happening. I'm not saying the web isn't amazing. It's amazing. It's, it's led to incredible explosions of, of entrepreneurship. I'm just saying there is a big, big mountain. And whole industries will die. Others will be born. And the world is going to change dramatically. It is not what it is today. You know, if you, if you think about it, let me, let me show just, just that, you know, to remember the... The mountains, right? The opportunity for growth there is just not much. You're fighting over the last table scraps of an old paradigm. It's like the buggy whip guys going, damn it, I can make a better buggy whip. But it isn't going to work in a trillion nodes. It just doesn't work because you can look at, at everything else in the universe that is complex, and it's based on some of these patterns. These are design patterns that have been replicated. A wise man told me, if you want to do something really hard, find somebody else who's already done it. Nature's already done it. I'm not saying slavishly steal every pattern. We can do better. You know, maybe we should. That took millions of years. <laughs> but, but we should build on top of that. You know, look at the amount of volume over on this other mountain. It's huge. Do you have a sense I don't know. You know, some analysts are saying that we're going to probably hit a trillion uh, devices of some form that are sometimes or always connected within the next five years. But the, the danger is they'll all be like huge Linux boxes inside of, you know, shoes. Yeah, I think they will. I think they will. I think, you know, Thomas Friedman talked about these two amazing things that we hit a wall on. We hit a wall on the environment because we were doing situational decision-making and values, and we hit a wall on the market. What he missed was, within the next 12 to 24 months, we're probably going to hit a wall in the information space. And, and it's not going to be pretty. I just met with about 100 different security analysts. There is stuff that is scary, and it is so brittle. You know, the cloud itself... I think someone characterized it really nicely. They said the cloud is a lot of marketing hype. It's something that we invented in the 60s. It's called client-server. We're just really good at it. Um, but it's, it's effectively pulling a lot of the resiliency out of the market. Five years ago, there were 100,000 companies who all had their own customer relationship management. They all had their own databases of their salespeople. They all had their own guys working on it. They all had their own servers. 
Five years forward, all 100,000 of those companies are in one company's customer relationship thing, in like five servers, you know, five buildings, right? And, and the question is, is that what we should do? That's pretty damn brittle. Now, the, market, the, the business model is great because every quarter I just pay this service. So it's great. It rewards short-term thinking. Um, and I'm not even saying that business model wouldn't survive in a peer-to-peer world. You could totally do that. It's just that you wouldn't be able to lose the stuff. So, so I think there is a brittleness that is inherent to this. There, there are some good clouds and some bad clouds, but they're really not clouds. Clouds like the water evaporates. It goes into pools. It goes to some other thing. You cannot take anything you built in Salesforce.com and pull it out tomorrow. You can't. It's customly built into there. It's, 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 you can't put it into Amazon's. You can't, you'll have to spend all the money to rebuild it. Amazon's is actually closer to what really should be happening in some respects. Um, so they're very different. But we all call it the cloud. It's in the cloud. It's in a gas-filled dirigible filled with hydrogen that has clouds painted on the side. And one guy, you know, shoot a flaming arrow. There's a, there's a big asymmetric threat here. Um, and again, I don't want, I'm not a doom and gloom. I'm, I'm, just, I'm, just saying, I'm just saying, if you look at nature, that's what happens, right? Look at Easter Island. Look at other kinds of things. Look at Jared Diamond talking about collapse. Um, no one's talking about that, and I wish they were. And the only thing I wanted to do today was just tell you maybe a different point of view. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, we're maybe crackpots. Yeah, I'd love to. No, not, not right now. I mean, we're doing some work with some um, medical companies. Um, it's more around um, the payer side of things, you know, being able to dynamically visualize um, if people are getting multiple prescriptions and other kinds of things and, and how long they're in hospitals and what's going on there. And again, tools built in like a day and a half that are then, you know, started to use to experiment with. Yeah, we would love to. We're a really small company just trying to, trying to stick to our knitting and, and trying to at least do some, some work to do these experiments and test. Um, we're validating it out in the world um, by doing things like deploying it, and it's out there, and, and it's now the official command post for the entire army. Um, and it came from our little research effort. We didn't build it alone. You know, we worked with some big guys, but we, we are credited with coming up with the first version and with building it out and building the company that now deploys it. Um, the, the interesting thing about that visualization, though, is it was visualization as a medium. I could see your head. I could see what you were thinking. You know, you were putting your ideas onto the page. When we did this uh, tests with commanders, we would do war games every six weeks. And uh, half of the commanders didn't want to share their desk. You know, they were like, well, I, you know, I don't want people going off half-cocked. You know, I, you know, I'm still thinking. The other half of the commanders shared everything. The group that shared everything won twice as many battles. Why? Well, if I looked at your desk and you were my boss, I could probably see what you care about. You know, you've got your tickets there. You're about to go. You've got this post-it note about this. So they were able to hover over and see, hey, this guy's worried about these ambulances that were just stolen. Let me go find license plate numbers. Maybe he thinks they're going to be turned into a, you know, an improvised explosive device. So it gave them, they started calling it top site. They could look into what people were doing. They could hover over. They could pick stuff up off of someone else's desk and look at it. So it really was about visualization as a medium for collaboration and decisions, not visualization as a pretty PowerPoint. They actually started calling PowerPoints dead data because you couldn't hover over it, you couldn't pick it up, you couldn't do anything with it. Um, and I think that's, again, that's 
place, playing on the mind part of it. It's, it's just an opportunity. Um, other questions? Um, I think I'm on the track here. There was a program written uh, and published by Lotus years ago. It was a database program called Improv. Uh, it was a spreadsheet program. And it was one that had um, every cell was fully connected to everything else in a full three-dimensional model. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, they killed the program because they thought it would kill their revenue stream with the Lotus 1, 2, 3. Yeah. Um, but it had uh, basically what looked like a spreadsheet and three links, and all those links had an infinite number of additional links that you could have. And by moving all this around, you constantly rearranged all the data. But effectively, underneath all that, every piece of data had a universal identifier, yeah. which was causing that. And this was about 20 years ago. Yeah, this is, that's why I said universal identifiers have been around for like 30 years. People know how to do this. And I, I don't want to claim that we're inventing something new, we're just ripping off nature. Yeah, and, and the unfortunate problem with that was that database, although it was completely linked with universal identity, no one else's is. And so you can't pick it up and move it, and then when you pick it up, you find out someone else defines something slightly different, and now you can't even understand if it's the same. Um, and, and when we do, though, fuse two different databases together, we tend to get exponential new discoveries. Right? So there's no question that the owner's manual for the human body will just pop up one day. You know, if you actually have this, it's, it's what we would call parametric model. For, for the universe. We don't have it. Wikipedia is pretty much a flat file. You know, it, you, you can't see that. It's like we're drawing CAD files of like a side view and then a top view of a house. And if you move this, the side view, you better go back over and move the top view. You know, and, and, and that just doesn't make sense. Well, the difficulty I have with all, I mean, I run um, a mid-sized business in which we have three full-time programmers just building database stuff constantly. I don't see how I could I struggle with the archaic pieces of that database, some of which are 17 years old. Um, most of it's built in a, a language done by Borland. Yeah. Um, and, but I struggle is how do I go from there? I can't stand what I've got, but I don't know how to transition to something better. This is a problem because it's a discontinuity, right? And, and that is, that's what we mean when we say orthodoxy. It's a different orthodoxy. Um, what we find people doing is building sandboxes starting to flow stuff in and using them for tasks they just cannot do in any other way. And then slowly having that sandbox just continually to grow because it's just peer-to-peer. It'll just keep growing. It'll keep sucking stuff in and coping with that. And you've got history of everything because it'll, it'll track all that too. So ten, they tend to do sandboxes. They test out on really high-value high things that they can get return on fairly quickly. And then it just grows. Um, and I, and I, you know, I'm just claiming that this is, that this is a possible approach. Um, we've published a lot of this stuff. We don't, we don't want to even be the people who build all this stuff. We just want it to happen. John. I mean, you know, this is a weird, murky future. Um, I think I would rather see something that the data is universal identity, so we actually can live in this giant world of it. And then these applets and these things can just scoop things out and use it. You know, it just needs to understand a container. And, and so there might be multiple different operating systems and different ways of doing it. But think today. I can't do this, right? I cannot pick up my phone and copy a word, you know, hit copy, right? And it's on my finger now, and I cannot paste it onto my screen, that is bullshit. Think about that, right? You know who I am, right? It's, it's networked. It's liquid. You know I just hit copy. 
I'm touching the damn computer over here. You know I'm touching the computer. Why don't you let me paste it? No, I've got to copy, paste it into an email, and I have to send it to myself. You know? Just think about that. And, and the, the apps that are all on the phones, the apps that are happening everywhere, that's another kind of silo, right? Because they don't really let you play between them. They, they don't let you kind of actually keep the, the real metadata about what they are. When they move to something else, you strip it away, you throw it away. In ours, you pull it out of one and another, you keep all the other stuff, you never know. Someday you might learn. That's the way the genetic world works. So, so it's, a, it's frustrating, <laughs> you know, but it's a big challenge. I don't know what will happen. Does that make sense? No, I, I mean, when I listen to you speak, it's, 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 I feel extra dumb. I don't mean to say that. It's just such a fascinating concept. It's just kind of like, you know, what becomes the operating system. Yeah. I mean, like, hell, we can't even get an iPhone to work. Yeah. Now, I agree. You know, when we get the Troy and Node thing, like, what is the, oper- is the operating yeah. system, the network? I mean, like, uh, it's just. Yeah, well, a lot of people want it to be. But anyway, it looks like. Yeah. Well, I appreciate everybody coming. Thanks for listening.